How are we doing, familia? What a privilege to be here with you. What a privilege to start today a new series, as uh, Sergio just mentioned it, based on Romans chapter 8. Before we talk about Romans chapter 8, though, I, I want to take a few minutes just to celebrate. We want to celebrate uh, God's faithfulness, and we want to celebrate God's power uh, and how he works in and through his church. As you probably recalled, um, two weeks ago, we said that as a church, we wanted to collect a special offering uh, to support the mission field, uh, both locally and globally. And, uh, and our plan, our desire was to uh, collect $40,000 from all of our members, right? And we invited you uh, to participate and things like that. Um, the first Sunday, though, the first Sunday that we made this call to the church, we collected more than $40,000 $40, just on that Sunday. By the second, no, no, wait, hold it, hold it. <laughs> by the second Sunday, we collected another $60,000 by God's grace and because of the power of the Spirit working in us. So now you can clap. So with that money, we, you know, we're helping with the food uh, shortage in Africa. We're playing, we are supporting some of our ministry. Uh, uh, helping some of, of the missionaries that we have in different parts of the world. It's all that money is going out. None of that money is staying in here because that was the purpose of the mission field, uh, of the mission fest. Uh, but locally, though, we know that there's a lot of necessities in our, in our towns and in our neighborhoods. And we also called you guys uh, to, uh, to collect, to bring food and to bring diapers and to bring wipes. Because uh, everyone knows that if you have a baby, you need wipes. A lot of them, Right. By God's grace and because of the Spirit of God working in us, we collected 5,400 pounds of food, 5,000 diapers, that's like three families, and uh, uh, 250 packages of wipes, of wipes. And for that, we want to give God glory. So now we can give glory as well. So thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you so much for your commitment. And may the Lord allow us to continue to serve him and give him glory through our generosity. With that then, I want to invite you to continue to support the church. I want to invite you to continue to be faithful and sustain the ministry because we believe that what we're doing here is for the glory of his name, the joy of his people, and the salvation of the lost. So if you are already... Uh, um, a faithful giver to the church, please continue to do that. You can see that the Lord is using it. And if you're not, you, you might want to consider being part of what the Lord is doing in our church. You could do that by text, texting to Tri-Village, uh, texting 77977. That is the way I do it. Actually, that's the way I used to do it. Now I have it automatic, which is so much easier. I don't even have to think about that. Uh, you could go to our website, or at the end of a service, you can leave your check in one of the boxes by the entrance. Amen? All right. Let's talk Bible. We're going to talk about Romans chapter 8. Someone has called this, a bunch of people have called this, the greatest passage in the entire Bible. And we have called this series Life in the Spirit. Um, today then, we're going to meditate and we're going to be thinking about the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 8. So I'm going to invite you to go there if you have your Bible with you. Um, before, uh, as you move in there, and we're going to put those verses on the screen, but as, as you move there, um, listen how one of the scholars described Romans chapter 8, the greatest passage in the entire Bible, the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of the Christian faith, 
the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden, and the highest peak in a range of mountains. Very poetic, beautiful. And this is basically what he's saying. That if we were to lose the entire Bible, one chapter that we ought to keep is Romans chapter 8. It doesn't mean that the rest of the Bible is not important, obviously. But it means that there's so much truth in Romans chapter 8 that is worth memorizing, meditating, fighting for, dying for. Romans chapter 8. The question is why? Why Romans chapter 8 is such a beautiful passage? I think that the simple answer and the simplest answer is because it explains to us what it means to be a Christian. How is it that a person becomes a Christian? What it means to be a Christian? What is interesting, though, is that Paul is going to talk about this becoming a Christian or being a Christian to have life in the Spirit. So I want us to spend a few minutes thinking about that. So you could please stand uh, as we're reading, uh, as we're going to be reading Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, as a sign of reverence for God and His Word. If you are here with me, could you please say, I'm here. Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How about we read that one again together? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because he was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son into the likeness, in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according with the Spirit, in accordance to the, with the Spirit, have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, if you're a Christian, you are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead would also give you, give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, verse 12, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. Can you say obligation? But it is not to the flesh to live according to it, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, allow me to pray. 
Lord, we, we come before you as thirsty people, thirsty for your word, thirsty to hear what you have already said, thirsty for the presence of your spirit, thirsty for the power of your spirit, thirsty for the gospel. Lord, as we spend these four weeks thinking and meditating and digesting this amazing chapter, I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you give us understanding and you give us conviction to live out what we have here and to embrace what we have here and to believe what we have here. And we pray for all of that in the name of Jesus. And we all say, you may take a seat. Now, um, this is the way I'm going to work it. Um, I, want you to, uh, I want you to see Paul, the person that wrote this, uh, when he talks about what it means to be a Christian, um, he's explaining to us in a different way that in order for us to become a Christian, there needs to be a transformation, a transformation of the heart, a transformation of the mind, and a transformation of the will. So basically, what Paul is going to show us is that if anybody claims to be a Christian, it's because the heart has been transformed, the mind has been transformed, and the will has been transformed by the power and the presence of the Spirit. If you want a short description of what it means to be a Christian, all you have to think about is the phrase, life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit is the description that Paul uses in this text to describe what it means to be a person of faith in Jesus Christ. So the way, so I'm going to make a statement, and this is a statement. A life in the Spirit involves the heart, the mind, and the will. So if you think that there's, it is possible for someone to become a Christian and just have Jesus in your heart, but it doesn't affect your mind, most likely you're not there yet. And if you think that it affects your heart and affects your mind, but it doesn't affect your will, the way you live your life, most likely you're not there yet. And if you think that you have the Holy Spirit, but your life is not being transformed, your heart is not being transformed, your mind is not being transformed, and your will is not being transformed, most likely you're not there. The reason why I say that is because I want you, if you're a Christian, I want you to embrace what you already have. But if you're not a Christian, I want you to question your life because maybe the Lord wants you to hear this because he wants salvation for you. Not maybe. He wants salvation for you. So I'm going to break this sentence uh, into four different points, obviously. So I'm going to talk first about what it means to have life in the Spirit. Why would Paul use this phrase to describe what it means to be a Christian? Well, many people and many scholars have said that Romans chapter 8, actually the entire book of Romans, if you will, but Romans chapter 8 in specific is a, is a chapter about the Holy Spirit. And the reason why scholars say that is because the name of the Spirit is mentioned 19 times in one single chapter. 19 times. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, whenever you see a word repeated time and time again, it's because that word matters. And what, the, what, the, what Paul is doing here is talking to us about the Holy Spirit in the 19 different occasions. Listen up. 
but not to explain to us who the Spirit is, because we're already assuming that we know that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, but he's focused in what the Spirit does. His focus is to explain to us what the Spirit does. And he's going to explain really clear, really clear in my opinion, what the main role of the Holy Spirit is. What the main role of the Holy Spirit is. But before I tell you what his main role is, let me tell you what is not. And the reason why I want to spend a few seconds on that one is because we all come from different backgrounds and we all have different positions and we all have different theological traditions maybe. And I think that sometimes we attribute to the Holy Spirit things that he would never do. Like, the Holy Spirit is not in the business, business of bringing attention to him, even though we must pay attention to him. The Holy Spirit is not in the business of creating an emotional experience that you cannot describe what happened, that you cannot explain, even though, there are times, and there has been times, in which, the Holy Spirit, in which the Holy Spirit can do something that you cannot explain it. I want to argue that when you look at from the book of Acts all the way to the end of the Bible, that is the exception and not the norm. The Holy Spirit is not in the business of creating this emotional experience that we cannot explain. The Holy Spirit is not in the business of creating this you could say, for a lack of a better word, an ecstasy in which you lose control. The reason why I say that that's not his role is because Second Timothy, uh, Timothy chapter one tells us that one of the uh, one of the ways in which you know that the Holy Spirit is moving is because he gives you a spirit of self-control. So, what is the main role of the Holy Spirit according to the Scripture and according to Romans chapter eight? Simple as this, to remind us or to bring us or to bring to our minds who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to bring you to Jesus, to convince you of Jesus, to guide you to Jesus and what Jesus did for you if you are a Christian already. The Holy Spirit converts us by illuminating our minds, allow us to see and understand, by giving us the gift to believe, by giving us the gift to repent, and to help us grow by pointing us to Jesus and what Jesus did for us. Where do I get that from? Because Jesus said it. Jesus said it, look at John chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the Spirit, the Spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak of his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He, says Jesus, will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive and what he and he will make known to you. Notice this. The Holy Spirit finds pleasure in guiding, in guiding us to the truth. Jesus is the truth. And the Holy Spirit finds pleasure in glorifying Jesus 
The, the simple definition of the word glorify is to make Jesus beautiful, to make Jesus precious, to make Jesus amazing, to help us to see Jesus not as someone that is just useful, but as someone that is beautiful and sufficient. That is the primary role of the Holy Spirit. The more we embrace Jesus is because the Spirit is working in us. The more precious we find Jesus because the Holy Spirit is working in us. That is the primary role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a bunch of different things. But that is his primary, primary ministry. You know how you're walking with the Spirit? Because you find Jesus amazing. All right. Point number one. Point number two, it tells you that a life in the Spirit, when you're a Christian and the Spirit is moving, he starts to work where? In your heart. Now, you're not going to find the word heart in this text. It's all over the New Testament, but uh, you're not going to find it here in the text. But the reason why I use the word heart is because when the Bible talks about your heart, it talks about the place uh, in which your affections uh, uh, sit, if you will. This is where, where if you want to know what you really love, you got to pay attention to what's in your heart. If you want to know what is the center of your being, then you have to pay, pay attention to what is in your heart. Whatever is in your heart controls your life. That's what the Bible says, that whatever comes, that comes out of our mouth comes from where? From your heart. So this is what the Spirit does. He elevates Jesus in such a way that he affects your affections. Not just your emotions, but your affections. Because the Spirit knows that the only way a person will change is when the affections change. Affections change. It's when you love something or something, some, someone or something more than everybody, anything else. And what the Spirit does is he works and drills Jesus into your heart and what he did for you into your heart in such a way that at one point you got to find them more sweet than, than anything else, more beautiful than anything else, more beautiful, more sufficient than anything else. How? How does the Spirit do that? And he tells you that he convinces you of two things. And this, what I'm about to say, is worth the entire message. Even if I don't do a good job. Listen up. He convinces you of two things. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Can you say no condemnation? And that there is no slavery in Jesus Christ. So let me break down one for you. What does it mean when the Bible says that there is no condemnation? Chapter 8, verse 1. It says, therefore. Can you say it, therefore? There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why I highlighted the word therefore is because simple grammar tells you that the word therefore is connecting what we're reading right now with something that happened before. Right? So in order for you to understand Romans chapter 8, you got to pay attention to what happened prior to Romans chapter 8. Some scholars have different opinions of what that means. Some scholars think, for example, that therefore is connecting chapter 8 to chapter 6 and 7. Other scholars, which is I think that's where I am right now, is connecting the word therefore not just to chapter 6 and 7, but connecting it to chapter 3 and chapter 5. Why? Because in those chapters, we, we get the concept of what it means to be justified by faith. 
One of the best words that you find in the Bible, one of the most powerful concepts you find in the Bible is when believers know that we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So let me read to you really quick Romans chapter 3 verse 4, uh, 24, and this is what it says. And all are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement um, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Verse 26. He is the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Keep in mind the word justify. Look at chapter Romans chapter 5. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, just like in, in Adam we all became sinners, so also one righteous act, Jesus Christ at the cross, resulted in justification and life for all people. I want to argue that out of all the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ, the greatest benefit is the benefit of being justified. Why? See, the word justification is a legal term. So you have to imagine God being the judge, right, and Jesus being kind of our lawyer, right? And what, te- and what these texts are saying is because Jesus lived the life that no one has lived, the righteousness that none of us have had and would ever have, and because Jesus died the death that we all deserve, he took the punishment that we deserve, and because Jesus resurrected, he gave us what we, all, what we most needed to be justified before God. It's a legal term. It means that when we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, God takes that and he gives it to you. Imputed righteousness in theology means that when God the Father looks at you in Jesus, he looks at you as righteous, as innocent, as, as accepted, completely forgiven, and he delights in you in the midst of your sin because you have been justified no condemnation you have been legally justified if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ this is why later on you will read that it says that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God listen up people listen up if you're carrying your shame Your shame is not greater than his grace if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Listen up, people, if you you think that your sin is bigger than his love. Listen up if you think that your guilt is more powerful than the cross. Just listen up if you think that your unfaithfulness will hinder God's faithfulness. Just listen up, church, if you think that your inconsistency affects God's commitment toward you. No condemnation. No condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. If you have believed and you have repented, no condemnation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses, and I know I say that every time I come here. Actually, every time I preach. But I think that this one is true. John chapter 17, verse 23. At Iglesia, I was doing a preaching series, which, by the way, later on we might do, but through, through a, a section of the Gospel of John. And when I read this, I remember studying. And when I read this, it was like, whoa. This is what it says. The world will know that you sent me and have loved them. God the Father has loved us even as you have loved me. 
You know how crazy that verse is? That because you have been justified and you are legally in Jesus Christ before the Father. And because there's no condemnation, God loves you with the same magnitude and intensity that he loves Jesus. That's a crazy thing. It's crazy. We don't, we don't even know how to embrace that in our heads. How could the Father love a sinful person like you and me? How could the Father love you the same way he loves his son? Because he was sinless, faithful. This week when I was prepping for this, I was checking Facebook and someone from the church posted a quote from John Lynch and a book he's got, he's called, uh, it's called On My Worst Day. And this is what he says, on my worst day, I am adored, enjoyed. This is because of justification, people. On my worst day, I'm adored, enjoyed, clean, righteous, absolutely forgiven, new, acceptable, complete, chosen, able, intimately loved, protected, continually um, thought about, enjoyed, cared for, understood, given all mercy, all compassion, defended, valued, esteemed, lacking nothing, never alone, secure, safe, appreciated, given all grace, all patience, and at peace with God. You know what's one, one word that is the synonym of justification, no condemnation? Freedom. Freedom. I think that the concept of justification is the most practical theological thing that we have. You know why? Because it allows you to be free when you feel that you can lose God. No condemnation. You cannot lose him. It allows you to be free when you think that um, when things go wrong, it's because God is punishing you. That's impossible because there's no condemnation. God could be, be bringing discipline to you and discipline to me, but that's not punishment. Discipline is always for our good. You know why I say that? Because there's no condemnation. It gives you the freedom. Listen up. It gives you the freedom to not having to win. It's okay to lose. You don't have to be the first one. You don't have to be the, the one that is approved by everybody. You don't have to do. You have been already approved in Jesus Christ to the Father. There's nothing you, for you to justify. Why try to get a better education if you can't? Why try to be a better person if you can't? Listen up. Wait until the end, all right? Uh, uh, why, why do you need to have a better job? Why do you need to have a better recognition? Why do you need more accomplishments? Trying to be something. Justify your existence. When in Jesus Christ you have been justified, imputed righteousness, before the Father, God sees you as his son, why do you need anything else? The most practical theological thing we have is the concept of justification. No condemnation. God is for you. Do you have that? If you're a Christian, you do. And if you don't, why don't you come to him? This is what you're looking for. See, the main role of the Holy Spirit is to convince you and to guide you and to remind you of what you already have in Jesus Christ. The more you embrace that, the more you change. Now, that will be enough for me. Actually, I could finish the sermon now, but I won't. 
Because the no condemnation part is just the beginning of the gift. Because not only we have in Jesus Christ no condemnation, but we are no longer slaves. Listen up. Verse number 2. Uh, verse, verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because he was weakened by the flesh. Let me pause there for a second. It doesn't mean that the law of God is not powerful, but it's weak when us sinful people are trying to live God's life without God. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not a sinful person, but like a human, uh, a human, uh, a weak human like us, without sin, to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh. And I'm going to make this really simple. What the text is saying is this. That when you become a Christian and you have no condemnation, not only you get the gift of being righteous before God, but you also get the gift of having the Spirit living and working in you so sin no longer has power over you. Sin has no power over you. That's part of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. It tells you that even though we are sinful people, still struggling with so many different things, we don't have to surrender to this evil thing inside of us. This is why John Stott says that the Spirit is the one that gives us the desire, the determination, and the discipline to reject evil. See, I have an issue. Listen, we describe each other as sinful because we're sinful still. My issue is when we use that term as an excuse for us to surrender to sin. Because if the Holy Spirit that lives in us, verse 11 says, that is the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. If the Holy Spirit lives in us and we are not condemned, it's because also he's giving us the power to say no to whatever is killing us. You are not helpless if you're a Christian. You are not a victim of your own struggles if you're a Christian. Is it easy to fight against our sin? Of course not. It's hard. You know what the problem is with sin? We hate it. Amen? And we love it. Amen? Uh, you hesitate. And you know why? Because you, you only do the things that you love, people. That's what Romans chapter 7 says. We have this weird relationship with our sin. We hate it because we have a new nature in Jesus Christ, right? But we love it because there's still the old man inside of us saying, oh, I like that. Why do you think that person, why, listen, why do you think that you fight? Because you like to win. What do you need to defend yourself? Because you like not to lose. Why do you need to do anything? Why, why do people do dumb things? Because we like it. We don't do the stuff that we don't like. That's the fight in your heart. And the spirit comes and works in you until you, I know that you like it. And I also know that you hate it. Don't surrender to it. You know, the perfect example, I don't know if I've used it here before, but half of you are new to the church anyway. So um, uh, the best example that I have is, is the testimony of St. Augustine. 
You know, if you know anything about that man, that man had, had kind of a weird addiction, I think, to lust. You know, he, you know, he did crazy stuff. Um, but he's got this experience with the Lord, and his life is transformed completely. And, and you can actually see what it means to have a life in which you are not condemned, and at the same time, you, the Spirit is giving you the power to say no to sin. So the story says that he's walking around the street, you know, after his conversion, and there's this woman that used to be a partner in crime, if you know what I mean. And, she lo- and he looks at her from the distance, and he decides to walk away. And the girl says, I'm assuming that it was a girl, says, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine says, yeah, but that's not me anymore. And he walked away. That's the spirit working. That was the spirit working in him. That is the spirit working in you. That's what he means by walk, but that's what he means by walking the spirit. That's what it means to be guided by the spirit. And it's not just to get, it's not, listen up, it's not that just that he gives you the power to say no. It's that he gives you the power to say no by elevating Jesus, by glorifying Jesus, by reminding of who you are already in Jesus, by, by pushing to your mind and your heart and your soul that there's no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. The Spirit means role is to glorify Jesus. And he glorifies Jesus by convincing us and reminding us in our hearts that in Jesus we are free from both the condemnation of sin and the power of sin. Now, how is it that the Holy Spirit affects our hearts? Well, a life of the Spirit involves not just the heart, but the mind. And this is going to be a quick reading. Look at here. Notice how many times the word mind appears in verse 5. Through eight. Look what it says. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. Verse six. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Verse seven. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Notice says that without the Spirit, it is impossible to want God and to obey God. Verse 8, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And he tells you that there's two ways to live. With your mind set on the flesh or, to your, or with your mind set on the things of the Spirit. And I'm going to try to be quick with this one. To have your mind set on the things of the flesh means when you allow your mind to be intoxicated or to embrace or to absorb or to love just the things that fulfill your desires. It is so interesting that when people talk about the flesh, they only talk about the negative things you do. Like smoking, oh, that's from the flesh. Drinking, oh, that's from the flesh. Oh, cursing, oh, that's from the flesh. Which is true. But that's not the only problem, you know. To live according to the flesh is to try to find in other places and in other things what only God can give you. That's to be in the flesh. It's to try to find your satisfaction in something outside of God. It's to try to find your security in something outside of God. It's to try to find your significance in something outside of God. That's why money is an issue, you know. There's no intrinsic problems with money. 
is when we think that if we have money, then we're happy. That's the problem. There's nothing wrong with your job. There's nothing wrong with love. There's nothing wrong with so many different things. The problem is when we want what God, when we want what God gives without God. That is to live in the flesh. It's when you surrender to the desires, and those desires are not giving glory to God or surrendering to God. You know, Tim Keller says that there are two ways for you to avoid God. Two ways. By being really bad and by being really good. It's when you're so bad that you say, I don't care about God. And when you're so good that you say, I don't need God. That is following the flesh. There's another way to live, text says, is to have our mindset and the things of the Spirit. And once again, if you're following the train of thought, to have the mind and the things of the Spirit is to allow the Spirit and to ask of the Spirit that He elevates Jesus, that He makes Him beautiful. This is the thing. Everything we go through is a fight of love. Either you're going to love this thing or you're going to love Jesus about this. Everything we go through is a fight in our hearts of love. Is what is it that is going to be the ultimate love for you? Is it going to be this thing or is it going to be Jesus? You know the reason how many of you guys are married? Raise your hand. You know, how, you know that the only way that you can stop fighting, this is free, people. This is free. All right? The only way that you can stop fighting for stupid things is when you are okay, even if you lose. And at that moment, when you got to make that decision, you got to say, am I going to love Jesus more than I love myself? Or am I going to love myself more than what I love Jesus? The Spirit allows you and brings you to Jesus time and time again. And he says that your satisfaction, your security and significance is not based on anything else but Jesus and him crucified. You know, J.C. Riley, which is a theologian in the 1800s, has, in my opinion, the best quote about how is it that we got to fight temptations and things like that. He says this, look at the cross, think of the cross, meditate on the cross, and then go and set your affections and the world, if you can. Come on, people, that was a good one. <laughs> Look at the cross, think of the cross, meditate on the cross, and then go and set your affections on the world, if you can. I am convinced that that's not only the, that is not only the way you become a Christian, but you continue to grow as a Christian. You guys remember the story of the prodigal son? He's eating with the pigs, man. And he said, what am I doing eating with the pigs when I have a place in my father's house? You see, when you got something much better, everything else becomes secondary. Politics becomes secondary. Achievements become secondary. Things that you do become secondary. Defending yourself becomes secondary. Trying to justify becomes secondary. Because you find something that is much more beautiful. Now notice that the life of the Spirit is a life in which that is guided and controlled by the Spirit, pointing us to Jesus, glorifying Jesus. And He works in our hearts. And the way He works in our hearts is by working in our minds. 
But when he's working in our hearts and in our minds, eventually he will work in our will. So this will be my third point. And I'm skipping a verse that you guys had over there. A life in the spirit involves the heart, the mind, and the will. Super quick. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. That's to give you the context. Now, listen how people respond once they understand that the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Verse 12. Therefore, that's a magic word again. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. It is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Crazy verse. Because it puts God's sovereignty and human responsibility on the same page. It tells you that it is the, out, it is the working of the Spirit in us. Illuminating us. Convincing us. Helping us. Leading us to repentance. He is the one that affects our desires, our determination, and our discipline. It is God working in his sovereignty in us. But then he says that we put to death. We do. I don't know how to put that stuff together in my head. God working sovereignly in the spirit and me responding at the same time. So here's a... Let me give you a little bit of theology here. This is telling us that God is not in the business of telling you what to do, and then you go ahead and do it by yourself. If that's the case, that's humanism. This is telling you that God is not in business of um, him doing everything for you, and you have no responsibility. That's, that's hyper-Calvinism, if you want to turn God is not in the business of, of doing his part, and then you do your part. He meets you halfway. That's not in the Bible either. This is how God works in us. Him working in our hearts and affecting our will. And at the end of the day, it's his glory. It is him working in us, affecting our will. And now we do. What is it that we need to do then? To put, uh, to, put the, to put our sin to death. If our will is affected and the Spirit is working in us, what is it that we need to do? And I have two recommendations for you. Number one, don't forget. Be intentional about not forgetting who God is. You know why we struggle? Because we forget who God is. Listen to this quote by, uh, uh, I'm going to put it on the screen, by Kathy and Tim Keller. This is what it says. Actually, I put it on social media this week. Lord, I worry because I forget your wisdom. Isn't that true? I resent it because I forget your mercy. That's true? I covet because I forget your beauty. I sin because I forget your holiness. I fear because I forget your sovereignty. 
you always remember me, and I'll put there in Jesus Christ, help me to always remember you. Amen. Don't forget. This is how you put to death your sin. Don't forget. We sin when we forget. And two, don't forget what Jesus did for us. John Owen, every time he was tempted to sin, he would sin. He wrote this in his book. He's got a book called uh, The Modification of Sin. That's where this one came from. And this is what he would do. Look at him speaking to himself. What have I done? What love, mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father of his love, for his love, to the Son for his blood, to the Holy Spirit for his grace? Do I thus require the Lord, uh, requite the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash? What can I say to, to the dear Lord Jesus? Do I account communion with him of so little value? Shall I endeavor to disappoint the very purpose of the death of Christ? Notice that he doesn't say, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm gonna, he's not even saying I'm going to read the Bible more or pray more. Nothing wrong with any of that. But Owen knows that what the Spirit does is to work in our hearts and to remind us of who Jesus is and what he did for us. And he works with our affections. And when you speak to yourself the good news of the gospel, that there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ, and that there is no slavery to sin anymore because of what Jesus Christ did, that's what transforms your life. This is the problem when you change by doing things. Either that depresses you because you could never accomplish what you said that you wanted to accomplish and you feel worse. Or it turns you into a proud person because you accomplish what you said that you were going to accomplish. The only solution is for us to be completely affected by the good news of the gospel. That is the life in the Spirit. Do you have that? So today we want to celebrate communion. And the reason why we want to celebrate communion is because this is one of the means of grace. This is what God gave us to help us remember who God is and what he did for us. So if you have your cup, please, I'm going to, take, I'm going to ask you to take the first um, kind of cover out. You could hold the bread in your hand. And before we participate, I want to remind you that the Bible always calls us, before we participate in communion, the Bible always calls you to examine your heart. So I'm going to give you a few seconds for you to think about um, where is your heart in regards to Jesus? If you're, not a, if, you're not a, if you're not a Christian, probably this might not be a good idea for you. Communion is for Christians. But maybe the Lord is calling you to him. This is the reason why you're here. This is the reason why you're listening to this sermon online. Maybe the Lord is calling you to him. But for us as Christians, we want to make sure that when we participate in communion, there's nothing between us. Because we already are in Jesus. So take a few seconds. Ask the Spirit to examine your heart.
And if there's anything that you need to ask for forgiveness and repent, just do it there. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me when you partake of it. Now you could take the second um, thing out. The cover of the cup. And the Bible tells us that in the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may partake of it. Allow me to pray. Lord, we just heard about the greatest news ever in the history of the world. That in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation. That those who, that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ have been delivered, Lord, from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. We thank you, Lord, because we have the Holy Spirit to live in us, Lord, and transform us, Lord. And it is the Holy Spirit, the ones that elevates Jesus, Lord, and, and makes us uh, desire him more and embrace him more. And I pray, Lord, that if we are already Christians, Lord, you allow us to be more sensitive to him, to be more aware of him, to rely on him much more. Because he will point us to our Savior. And he will drill into our minds these two words. No condemnation and we thank you for that and I pray that you allow us to believe that more Lord and I pray that there is anybody here Lord who has not who doesn't have this thing and is still dealing with guilt and shame and sin Lord I pray that you bring freedom by allowing them to see and embrace Jesus Christ and for those of us that are Christians Lord, that we continue to embrace this concept of no condemnation being justified as a way to continue to grow. Please help us, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say...